You are tuning into Pro Bono Perspectives, live from Brooklyn, where the city never sleeps and purpose is more than just a buzzword. Pro Bono Perspectives brings together leaders that have traveled across sectors, industries, and experiences on their path to creating change for the communities in which they live and work. And I'm your host, Danielle Holly, CEO of Common Impact, a national nonprofit that designs skills-based volunteer programs that amplify the impact of social change organizations by harnessing the talents and the skills of private sector employees. I am lucky enough to cross paths with these leaders every day through my work with Common Impact and can't wait to bring you behind the scenes to share their stories. We are in the midst of the great resignation with nearly two-thirds of all workers considering leaving their jobs and nearly 11 million jobs open. It's showing no signs of slowing down. There is some good to it. It causes a lot of disruption, but this is an employee's market where candidates can demand the compensation and the work-life balance and the roles that they deserve. But for the nonprofit sector, it has translated to a significant capacity strain in an area, HR and talent and leadership development, that's already woefully underfunded and under-resourced at nonprofits. Today, we get an up-close look at how the great resignation is impacting nonprofits in the sector from Melissa Madzell, who's the Managing Director of Equity Initiatives at Koya Partners, which is an executive search firm dedicated to connecting exceptionally talented people with mission-driven clients. She has a front row seat every day to the opportunities and challenges that nonprofits and candidates are facing in this very dynamic moment in the workforce. Hi, Melissa. Welcome to the show. I'm so excited to have you here today. Thanks so much, Danielle. It's great to be here and thank you for having me. So let's start with what you do, how you got here. And then I want to dive into the current state of the workforce, which is just as you and I have had many conversations, we're in a very unique moment here with the quote unquote great resignation. So yeah, I would love to share with our listeners how you have a front close view to this and then we can dive in. That's great. So I'm the Managing Director of Equity Initiatives at Koya Partners, and we're part of the Diversified Search Group. And what we do on a big scale is executive search. Koya focuses mainly in the nonprofit space, really in the mission-driven space. And then within Koya Partners, I get the privilege of being the person who thinks about the intersection of diversity, equity, and inclusion and the executive search process. So that means that I'm doing a lot of building up our team capacity and understanding and expertise around diversity, equity, and inclusion. And I also get to be the person who figures out what the trends are in the market and who thinks about what the, what's on the horizon for where we're headed in terms of diversity, equity, and inclusion. And most importantly, how our team as recruiters can help support the diversity, equity, and inclusion goals of our partners and within our own work. And I come into this work as a social worker by training. And so I, I started my career doing nonprofit program work and then ended up taking my social work degree into corporate partnerships work. And I really enjoyed it, but felt like I could do different work if I got outside of the development space. And so I had the opportunity to be the chief of staff of a startup organization for a little bit, and then ultimately shifted into recruiting. And once I got into recruiting, I just found a home in the social justice space. 
because it allowed me to do work that really aligned with my values. And particularly over the past five years, that felt quite important to me as a person of color who is married to an immigrant, who is queer. It has been just a joy and a gift to do work that has aligned with my values. And so doing all of these things, it it created a natural jumping off point into now focusing on diversity, equity, and inclusion, or DEI in this really unique and exciting role. Well, and I... I, my mother was a social worker, so I grew up with the belief, and I still hold it, that we should all start our careers in social work. I think that's right. <laughs> An incredible foundation for really all jobs that require any sort of empathy and social skill and applying of a rigor and a management to that. And so uh, it's clear to me how that feeds into the work that you're doing. When you started your career, did you think that you would be where you are right now? I, when I started my career, I had no idea what a recruiter was. I'd never heard of it. And honestly, I think when I started my career, people weren't talking about diversity, equity, and inclusion. I just knew that I always felt different. And so as I continued through different chapters of my career, I became more and more focused on how to make other people feel less different in their work so that they can just show up and do what needs to be done. Because we have too many important causes for that feeling of difference to hold people back from realizing their skills and their talents. So how does that show up right now in your work with DEI? The racial reckoning long overdue, still happening, has opened up a lot of, I don't know if it's particularly the nonprofit sector, you could probably tell me that, but certainly employers' eyes to the need to shift how they're thinking about diversity, equity, and inclusion practices and who they are placing in leadership roles. So how's that showing up in your work? You mentioned that you tackle this at Koya from both an internal and uh, a client perspective. Yeah, it, it's been just so interesting, Danielle. Certainly a lot of our clients are coming to us with the very explicit request, hope, sometimes demand that we're identifying people of color for their leadership roles. One of the questions that we get into and and discussion topics that we get into with our clients is how ready they are to have a staff that's led by people of color, that's led by women for the first time, but especially people of color. And that for so many organizations in the nonprofit space, this is a turning point. It's my friend, George Settles, is somebody who's probably known to a lot of your audience. And he talks about this being a reclamation of leadership. And I think that's so true because when we're talking about serving communities of color, the leadership really ideally would look like the people being served. And so we're having a lot of hard and challenging conversations with organizations about that readiness. And what we're finding is those organizations that have already been doing the work, that have already been thinking about how their culture is ready to evolve or to change, those organizations are finding great success. For those organizations that are coming to us and saying, we need to place a Black person as the executive director for the first time. We have an all-white board of directors. The entire senior team has no people of color, maybe one person of color. Then that's more of an uphill challenge, both to identify people who want that role, but then also to make sure that the, that the person of color who's placed in that role is successful. So, so that's a challenge that I think is not maybe not being addressed 
quite as openly as it could be. So we pride ourselves in that. And then I think that there's a very serious generational component to what's happening within organizations right now as well, where younger people in the workforce are expecting and demanding different things than many of us have just always been used to and thought just came with having a job. Well, and I've spoken to a couple of Black women over the past month, specifically, who have just entered into these leadership roles. And one of their reflections from their process and finding a new, new job is a fear that they were being tokenized, right? Like that it wasn't about their qualifications that had them step into this role. It was about the fact that they had that sort of request coming from their future employer. How do you navigate that? Because that's something that when you think about someone being as successful as possible, you want someone walking into that role and you want everyone around them knowing that they were the best person for the position and they were, but you know, the state of the market has them asking themselves that question. That I, I think if I, um, if I've got one, one flag that I carry, I actually carry many flags, but one of the big ones is around how do we make sure our, our candidates don't feel tokenized because that just sets everybody up for disappointment and for failure. Right. And so, so I, one of the things that I am a big proponent of is making sure that our team is prepared to go into our clients and to talk with their search committees and say, here's how we're not going to talk about our candidates. Here's what we're not going to ask of our candidates. We are going to treat them like skilled, talented, experienced professionals. We're not going to refer to them as a quote unquote diverse candidate. We're not going to expect them to be the magic solution. And I think that these are real and hard things that are, that exist. And then the other thing that I think is more once we have uh, once we have candidates who are placed, we're really encouraging search committees to message to the board of directors how important it is, especially for executive directors, that we're looking at executive directors and CEOs to have coaching and support, to have a really clear commitment of partnership from the board of directors and a really clear commitment of partnership from their senior team. Because sometimes what can happen is that the tokenization comes out when the black woman gets placed, often it is a black woman, and she makes some hard decisions that maybe could have been made before she got there. And all of a sudden the staff doesn't think she's qualified, doesn't think that she's the right person for the role because it's hard to have somebody who feels really different and new come in and make hard decisions. So, so I think that those, that intentionality about the onboarding, about the communication of the search process, but really about the support and partnership that's happening is key. And what, what are you seeing as the challenges there and or maybe some of the bright spots and solutions? Because that's what you headlined with, right? That this question around whether organizations are ready for this, this transformation and how we think about leadership that is to the good, but organizations are still so baked, many, right? Not all, but many are still really baked and built in a white supremacist culture and whether there's an intention or not, not always set up for that shift. So how, uh, what are you seeing in the sector that the resources, the solutions that we might share? Mm -hmm. the, I think the coaching piece is so important because yeah. it, it is often helpful to have a third party, somebody who, who can be a little bit more objective, who can look from the outside, who has the context 
of the sector and of the landscape to to meet and work with not just that new executive director or CEO, but that person and the the next level down. Because I find that then they get to work together, the the leader and the C-suite, they get to work together to figure out their stride as a team. What do they need? What are the skills they have? Where do they need to stretch? And, and I think that that can be a very meaningful place that has ripple effects throughout the whole organization. So I want to pivot just for a moment to another dimension of this, the current workforce and the current talent pipeline. It's really broader than that. But we saw such an exodus in the sector and in general of women during COVID because of the level of responsibility that they suddenly had thrust upon them with childcare, with caring for family members and all of the myriad um, unspoken mindshare that women absorb in, in particularly traditional households, but also in general, we saw nearly I think Bureau of Labor Statistics, nearly 2 million women left the workforce in COVID. Are you seeing that on in the day-to-day of recruitment in terms of transition or open roles or folks trying to get back into the workforce? You've seen that dynamic unfold. We're seeing some of that. I think um, what we're seeing a little bit more of is just people needing more flexibility. So women are are often still, I mean, we're, we're not seeing a drop in women as candidates for the roles that we're doing, but we're seeing women who are coming in and saying, I'm not going to be able to relocate for two years. And I don't have flexibility around that. I can travel, but I cannot, I can't move my family right now. We're, we are also seeing organizations that are, that are needing to get a little bit more creative around, around their benefits. And we're applauding that. I think that's fantastic. And then I think the other thing that we're starting to see too is when people are, are leaving the big hard charging jobs that, that so many women have been in, it's often to step into more independent consulting work or boutique consulting work, things like that. And so those, those smaller operations that allow for more flexibility, but often the same, if not more money and income we're seeing um, a lot of a lot of people shifting into that direction to give themselves the flexibility that they need to adjust to to the demands that COVID is putting on so many of us, but also to respond to the burnout, the massive burnout that's that's happening in the sector. Right. Well, and one of the strengths of the social sector has always been the full set of benefits that it offers an employee, right? A compensation, but also flexibility and a purpose-filled work experience or the promise of that anyway. And I wonder how much of this mandate that is now coming from employees across sector is going to either support the sector in lifting that up or make it a little bit more competitive for talent on those particular dimensions. Because I think the nonprofit sector is also pretty well versed in figuring out how to flex to get the right talent in the door because compensation hasn't been necessarily its strongest lever, right? Where it can, it can notch that up significantly without care. It has to really think about the full package. So the nonprofit sector has 
been able to leverage the flexibility it can provide with its workforce. And it's the, the time that employees have to work, their location, and other things that are ancillary benefits to compensation, right? That the private sector hasn't always been known for, where the private sector has been much more of an in-office culture, nine to five, take it or leave it. Here's your big shiny salary to go along with all of those commitments that you need to make that aren't flexible. And that seems like a dynamic that is shifting. And again, I'm, I'm speaking dramatically, right? I know there's a lot of gray in between, but my question is really, do you think that that will remain a benefit of working for the nonprofit sector? Or do you think we're going to have to, as the social sector leaders, start to think more creatively around what the value prop is to join the sector versus a business that are increasingly purpose oriented. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I could see multiple sides of that. I think on one hand, people because of COVID, because of the racial reckoning that we've had are wanting to be closer to their personal identity and purpose in their work. So there's more of a draw to the social sector for those opportunities right now. At the same time, I think that the tech sector really did push workplaces as a whole by saying a workplace can be more than just a place you go from nine to five and there is zero, there's zero flexibility. And so I think that's where the nonprofit space has a lot of room for creativity and a lot of room for, for really listening to their employees and thinking about what people want. And so it might be that there are some, some organizations that find that their their team really just wants a no meeting day once a week. What happens if we have meeting-free Wednesdays? Or there might be other organizations that find that their employees actually just need more support in paying back their student loans. I think of so many civil rights organizations where their people need law degrees for, to do their work and they have massive student loans to pay back. Mm-hmm. And so that's where I, I do think that there's a, a mix of, of what organizations will need to do to retain people. I do think they need to ask their employees what is the most meaningful and what, what are the benefits that can keep them. But I don't think we're ever going back to a place where, where organizations can say without pushback, everyone needs to be in the office all day, every day. And of course, this is different than frontline essential worker-based organizations where, you know, when we're talking about, about a homeless shelter, that's going to have a different, a different set of expectations or a hospital, you know, other, other sorts of organizations within the nonprofit space. But for the, the, the more flexible parts of the nonprofit sector, I think that, that employees are really going to be pushing back going forward. And that's going to be critical in order to make sure that we retain top talent and that that talent doesn't go to some of the the corporations that are that are, that have the promise of a mission focused body of work right right emphasis on the promise exactly i think that's <laughs> and I, I think that's what we're seeing sometimes now too i see it with especially with younger people in the workforce where they're they're expecting corporations to really fulfill that promise and then sometimes and often being disappointed and i and in those conversations i have to say I haven't have to say, remember that they're really focused on profit first. Right. So your happiness is important, but their profits are more important than your happiness. Right. 
Right. And that won't change until there's an actual double or triple bottom line. And there are some companies that are uh, starting to, right, I think of the Patagonias of the world as uh, a company where that promise does really translate. But that, I think, is in the exception versus the rule category. So scoping up to this term great resignation, right, which in general refers to that folks are responding to what you just talked about, that folks are, they were in their roles and seeing how COVID panned out and are now leaving in droves for greater purpose or greater flexibility or a a new four walls in a year and a half that has felt really static. And we're also seeing, because of that, a vast amount of openings, job openings. And when I have talked to Common Impact itself is in a couple of recruiting processes right now. When I've talked to recruiters about this, and I know you and I had this conversation as well, when does this end, right? How does this end where we have candidates, so many candidates on the market, and we have candidates that are in the final rounds of interviews that are in five or six different processes at once? I think part of that is because it's a pretty low barrier during in this virtual world to enter interview processes, right? Does that all sound right to you? Is that what you're seeing just to push back on some of the assumptions and headlines that I shared? But also, do you see this settling down or is this the the future state of our workforce? And we all, as leaders who are recruiting, as recruiting firms, have to figure out how to calibrate to meet the new dynamics of the market. I- I do think there is some some amount of this that's going to go on for for a number of years. It's almost a, a generational thing at this point because we have we have so many different components that are contributing to that. One, you know, we've got all the things that we've already mentioned. We've got the the need for people to feel closer to purpose, the need for for people to have a a, a greater sense of belonging in their workplace. We've got people who need flexibility because of COVID or just because of life in general. The racial reckoning, all of those things, yes. On top of that, and this is maybe a bit biased because I come out of the social justice space, we saw such a movement of how money has been flowing and has been used coming out of the Trump administration and where organizations, on one hand, we had organizations that were just fighting and fighting and pushing and pushing so hard to protect our rights for four years, but the leadership of those organizations is exhausted. And those people are saying, I need to step back. I need to, this is the moment now where it's someone else's turn to step into the lead. So a lot of that movement is happening. I think that the racial conversations, the racial unrest and reckoning that we've had in the country has led to a shift in how resources are being distributed in a way, in addition to the threats on democracy or tied to the threats on democracy, I suppose, but in a way that philanthropy is impacting the nonprofit sector in such a way that that there's more opportunity in some spaces, less opportunity in other places. The philanthropy world itself is having a lot of turnover. And so just each of these areas are impacting the others. It's like the the dominoes are, are falling. And so it will take, I expect, several years for this to play out of people getting into place, feeling comfortable, the new expectations of the work environment getting settled. And so I 
I don't have a crystal ball, but I, I do, I do expect that this will be a, a landscape that is continuing to shift and change for probably the next five years. Well, and that sounds like a, a pretty clear crystal ball. I, I mean, I, <laughs> <laughs> and the one we've been looking into, right? The only thing consistent is change itself, something like that. I I wonder, and I, I speak as a nonprofit leader who also is support at Common Impact's work is to support the capacity of other nonprofits. And one of the areas that is sorely underfunded and under-resourced at nonprofits is HR and talent development. And this market places such a such a strain, there already was one, but such a strain on organizations to figure out how to, as we were talking about before, retain their current team and provide those benefits and distribute those benefits, but also the the level of effort that goes into recruiting the right candidates now is really significant. And so when we think about that being a, if not long-term, then at least midterm, next two or three years, challenge that nonprofits are going to face, what would you what would you point to as the the resource needs, right? And speaking to funders as much as organizations, because it really does come from making sure that organizations have the right resources to invest in this stuff. Yeah, yeah. I think part of that, and I agree, this is a massive area that needs investment and building. And I think part of it is that the the nature of HR historically has been sort of a check the boxes and you know, make sure people get paid on time, make sure they fill out their paperwork and that they're generally following the rules. And what what even in the past, I would say more of the past five to 10 years, we've seen the shift more towards people culture, people, culture, and values. And as that's happened, it's it the nonprofit sector has been more on the leadership side of saying we need to really think about how people get what they need from the workplace, how they are being fulfilled, how they're not burning out. Um, and how can we be strategic about who is in our our work community? That is a different skill set than the operational skill set that comes with HR. And so I do think that a lot of organizations are having to shift their thinking about who fills those roles, what those roles actually look like. Is there somebody who's a chief people officer and then there's somebody who's a director of human resources? Or and, and in addition to that, the, to layer onto that, where does DEI fit in to that conversation as well? Because is DEI part of the chief people officer's role or is it a separate role? Because there are so many other pieces that are tied to DEI work. And, and also from all of these various versions of the role, who is reporting into the CEO or executive director and who isn't? So there are a lot of different ways that, that the structures need to shift within organizational leadership to make space for these new functional areas or to shift to evolve in this way that we're talking about people differently and supporting and holding our people differently. And and I think that when we have philanthropic expectations or, or funding expectations of our nonprofits that are looking to reduce overhead and pull back from overhead, we're losing the opportunity to build organizations in this way and to be thoughtful about how we can invest in the people development, the talent development, the culture and the values. And because if we're looking at at the nonprofit space needing to constrain its overhead expenses and its expenses and administrative expenses, then you know we lose 
we can't attract these great candidates to to fill those roles. And we can't retain them. I mean, all of the all of the reading that I've done and the studies that I've seen on why people leave the nonprofit sector for other sectors, it's not compensation, which is the familiar trope, right? Uh, it is because they don't see a career path. They don't see the development. They don't see how their effort is going to translate into professional leadership development for them and how that's going to be ladder or lattice, right? In the way that it is businesses, particularly larger businesses, have that in spades. And so that that investment and that path and trajectory, of course, looks different in the social sector, but it needs to be visible <laughs> and it needs to be clear, right? And I think we we haven't as a sector been really resourced in that way. So I have about 15 other angles that I want to look into your crystal ball from, but <laughs> we are coming <laughs> at time and that big bang that you heard before. I don't know if you heard that. I did, yeah. Was literally a mouse running across my podcast closet. We were, for our listeners, before we hit record, Melissa and I were joking about the strange places that we tuck ourselves into to get the best audio for podcasts. And mine is in my game closet um, on my second floor. And I have company today. <laughs> oh my gosh. For the background noise. I feel like we need to wrap this immediately for your sake, Danielle. <laughs> You're like, get out of that closet. Exactly. <laughs> um, he appears to be, uh, he appears to be. Anyway, final question on that note. What is the, what's the best part of your day? What keeps you going in all of this work? Oh, I, I love that. I love that you ask all of your guests this question because every, every time I've heard one of your guests talk about it, I leave just happy on their behalf. For me, it's, it's being a connector. I love connecting people. I love figuring out how I can be a resource to someone and, and being able to say with all the sincerity, what can I do to be helpful for you? And, and especially when I'm talking to women of color, queer folks of color, that it is, it's something that just, it, it makes me feel like I am living my purpose in this way that is really uh, extraordinarily special. And it's just a gift to be able to, to support other people. Wonderful. Well, we in this sector are very lucky to have you living your purpose. And I so appreciate you coming on and sharing a little bit of your story and just the conversations and wisdom you have given me over the years. So thank you for the work that you do every day and for sharing a little bit of that with us today. Oh, same to you, Danielle. Same to you. Definitely. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to Pro Bono Perspectives today. If you like our show and want to learn more, check out our website at commonimpact.org. Leave us a review and tell your friends and colleagues about us. Tune in to our upcoming episodes to hear from everyday leaders using their skills to help their communities.